first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I am your host, Jesse David Fox. This week's guest is Jack Whitehall, one of England's absolute biggest comedians touring arenas, starring and co-creating hit TV shows. In America, however, he is uh, not one of the biggest comedians. Look, don't get me wrong. He does pretty well for himself. But at the same time, if he was out with his family here, more people might recognize his dad. You know, that's because Jack has done five hit seasons on Netflix of Travels with My Father, a show about his, well, travels with his older, very proper father. The disconnect between how big he is there and how big he is here is fascinating. How do you go from playing 20,000 people to playing 200 people or even 1,000 people? It's, it's interesting. Though you, you will be able to see Jack in the new season of The After Party, which premieres on July 12th on Apple TV+. So the joke we're going to start with comes from Jack's 2017 Netflix special, At Large. To give you a sense of how famous and fancy he is in England, the joke does involve interacting with the royal family. So here is Jack Whitehall. This is the thing, okay? Like, I have had these scandals in my career, and I always feel like I'm on the verge of another one because I put my foot in it. I can't help it, right? I nearly did it on a big scale last year. Last year, I was asked to host the Royal Variety Show, the prestigious annual charity gala attended by a member of the royal family. The year that I hosted it, it was attended by Prince Harry. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to start the evening off by paying Prince Harry a compliment. Get him on side. So I walked out, 5,000 people, black tie, Royal Albert Hall. I was like, your Royal Highness, Prince Harry, I would like to start by complimenting you on the bravery and the courage that you showed in Afghanistan. A ginger in that heat. Woo, fuck me. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed, because on the night, that one went down like a dead corgi, okay? <laughs> From there on in, hard work. End of the show, the one thing you've got to remember to do as host of the Royal Variety Show is lead the cast in a bow to the Royal Box, okay? So I'm stood on stage, end of the show, next to Sir Elton John, National Treasure, and One Direction, Regional Trinkets. And there they <laughs> And do you know why I didn't do the bow to the Royal Box? Because Elton John, Sir Elton John, National Treasure, a man who I have never met before in my life, 
thought it would be funny, live on TV in front of 5,000 people at the Royal Albert Hall, as I was about to bow to the Royal Box, he leant in and whispered in my ear, I wouldn't bend over in front of me, love. <laughs> and there's cameras everywhere. They caught the exact moment he said it. Look! <laughs> Pulled out of the bow. So that was quite bad, okay? Act of treason, live on stage. Afterwards, it gets even worse. Afterwards, they have this black tie charity reception. God, these stories are so relatable. <laughs> so I stupidly decided that I would invite with me, as my plus one to the charity reception, my mate, Dave. Okay? <laughs> I'm laughing. Jack, you do not have a friend called Dave. <laughs> it's short for the Earl of Daventry. Okay, it's a fake name. He's not actually called Dave. I've given him a fake name for this story because he doesn't come out of it great. Right? <laughs> now, what Dave is, Dave is your dickhead friend. So I'm hanging out with dickhead friend at the bar. Not hanging out. You don't hang out with a dickhead friend. You man-mark him. Right? So I'm man-marking dickhead friend at the bar. Prince Harry walks over. Prince Harry walks over with two armed security personnel. Just remember that for later on in the story. These guys have guns, all right? So he walks over. Me and Gabe stood here at the bar. Dave, not Gabe. That went well. <laughs> Give him a fake name and then just say his actual name out loud. <laughs> what do I do? Do I start again? <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't believe I've done that. Because I normally do that story and I just say his name. And then the Netflix lawyer was like, you have to give him a fake name for the special. <laughs> so I made up the name and then I just said his actual name. <laughs> can, they, can they beep it? <laughs> what have I done? Thank <laughs> you. Well, his name isn't, isn't Dave. His name is Gabe. So I guess we're going with Gabe. Gabe Turner is his full name. <laughs> He's on Twitter. <laughs> this goes out all over the world. <laughs> He's gonna kill me. Okay, sorry, I was gonna stop crying. <laughs> Okay, right, okay, so Prince Harry walks over to me and Gabe Emmanuel Turner. <laughs> Stop. Okay. So G Gabe, Dave, whatever. He's, I've forgotten his name. Gabe, okay, is a big guy. Gabe is a big guy. He's got cauliflower ears, shaved head, like big rugby player, all right? <laughs> kind of guy you wouldn't want to throw under the bus. <laughs> Anyway, so Gabe's a big guy. Prince Harry walks over. He decides he's going to do a little joke. So Prince Harry walks over. He's like, huh, Mr. Whitehall, is this your bodyguard? I was like, oh, that's so funny. Yes, because he's very tall. Oh, you're so amusing. <laughs> Probably cut that bit out as well. So, no, the problem is, I was so busy laughing at Harry's little joke, 
I didn't realize what was unfolding next to me. It was like one of those moments in life where everything happens in slow motion. I turned to my left. I could see that my dickhead friend was gearing up to drop a clanger, but there was nothing that I could do to stop it from happening. Do you know what his response was to getting called a bodyguard by the fifth in line to the throne at a black tie charity reception? He went, oi, oi, f off, Ron Weasley. <laughs> Shots fired! Shots fired! <laughs> to be fair to Harry, he leaves it just long enough for me to think that my friend is about to be executed by the security services. And then cool as you like goes, well, I'd rather look like Ron Weasley than Shrek. I'm here with Jack Whitehall. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So, um, you know, what does writing stand-up mean to you? You know, when, when you say I'm writing my stand-up, what does writing look like? How do you write? Mm -hmm. How much is it on pen to paper? How much is it live? What is, what is your process? Yeah, my process is, is very gradual. It's uh, jotting down notes in my phone when I have a thought or writing it down on a little piece of paper and then coming back to it and um, then... Uh, you know, taking the nub of an idea and 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 I do write it all out actually. Um, you know, we'll see it on my laptop and write every mm -hmm. word of it, and then we'll do it on stage, and then do a little bit of writing on stage as well, and tweak and alter things and uh, sort of improvise around it. Um, but yeah, I, I seldom will sit down with a blank page in front of me and go, yeah. right, I'm going to write uh, some material today." Um, it has to sort of come to you. You know, when I talk to British com comedians, I'm interested how how the sort of way British comedians start and American comedians is sort of similar and different. But like, were you oriented around shows? Like, especially starting out, did did you do a lot of Edinburghs and as a result that shape how you think of like building a set? Yeah, Edinburgh was definitely the first place that I went to as a comedian and saw it and thought, oh yeah, this is a viable kind of career path for me and something that I kind of adore and would love to be involved in this world and saw shows and, uh, you know, there's, there's a kind of like disparity, I guess, between the comedy that I grew up with and the comedy that I then saw at Edinburgh, mm -hmm. which was more like, um, you know, uh, personal and alternative, um, you know stylistically and then the stuff that i probably was brought up with was a little bit more trad and mm. was was things like the royal variety show which would have like quite old school you know comedians and tv presenters coming on and um telling uh kind of hand-me-down jokes and it was you know very mainstream and then seeing this other version um uh at edinburgh that was you know completely different to that Although weirdly, I feel like probably with my career, I've towed a line somewhere in between, like yeah. lurching between personal material and uh, having a little bit more of a mainstream sensibility yeah. than maybe some of my peers. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, the other thing I was curious, I was watching your last special and in the credits, you thank Alex Edelman as a stand-up consultant. Yeah. I'm friendly with Alex. Can you talk about what a stand-up consultant does? Uh, literally, he came in and watched my show. Uh, so it was at the end of my tour before I did my special mm -hmm. um, 
and like he's great he's and and i i love alex and i just i just trust his judgment so much and he just yeah he just watched my show and like gave me some some notes on it and like i don't know like sometimes i think i'm it's good to have a little bit of a steer and, and yeah. alex is like a really good critical eye and he's like that joke could be more original or mm. you know that that subject matter is a bit hack you probably want to drop that for your special and he's amazing at that because like i do think for me as well especially when i'm doing like a big arena tour around the country and doing it to like a very yeah like a very kind of broad audience that have maybe seen me on tv and have come along and i put on like a two-hour show like of that two-hour show I would say some of it is not like special material, but sure. some of it's just for the room. And so Alex is also quite good at like taking the scalpel out and being mm. like, yeah, maybe you don't want to do that bit of like, I don't know, audience banter or yeah. whatever it is. So it, it's that he's like a critical eye. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I, the hack police as well. Yeah, well, I imagine <laughs> some you know, stuff gets fast in there. Probably, you're if you're seeing people who don't see much stand up, you need have some material because they're coming. Partly because they have an idea of stand-up in some ways. If you're trying to almost wrangle that many people, you need to like make sure you're playing to everyone. Otherwise, you can yeah. lose. That's all, you're playing to tens of thousands of people. Yeah, you definitely have to. It's a di very, very different show in an arena to, to a theater or a comedy club. And I think that's definitely something I learned between the sort of the specials that I've shot there. The first one I did, I just did the arena show as what as mm. it was, and then I watched it back, and it and it didn't work as well as a special because I was playing to an arena in the round as well, yeah. which is really challenging. <laughs> uh, and the second one, I tried to tailor it a little bit more and play to the camera and know yeah. that I was doing it for people watching it on a laptop screen, and so I had to alter my performance and 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 tweak the material ever so slightly i think to to make sure that it works better as a special uh and then the next one that i do i feel like maybe i won't do it <laughs> i might try and do <laughs> yeah. it in a theater because it might be a better room uh, um, to record a in. yeah so i wanted to get into this joke so let's start with the, the the writing of the first joke pre this joke the joke that exists the first time the joke that you told at the royal variety show which the wording is slightly different in the Royal Variety version than the one you tell the special, but generally it's the same idea about being a ginger in the heat. Can you talk about when you had that thought? What you thought when you were like, can I tell that joke? How are people going to receive it? Well, I'll tell you exactly um, the, the sort of origin of it. So the first time I ever did the Royal Variety show, I had five minutes set mm. to do, and it was Prince Charles and Camilla who are the royals in attendance. Yeah. And I'd worked out all of my jokes and then I was like, I'll do a little bit at the beginning where I refer to them mm -hmm. and, I, and I'll write some jokes specifically about them. And this is 2010? This is, I think, 2010. Yeah, so I was pretty f new and fresh and hadn't done a lot of stuff on TV. Most of the audience probably wouldn't have known yeah. who I was. So it's a really, really hard gig. And I think the other comedian on the night, I'm not going to mention his name, but he's a very successful comedian now in the States and he'd had a tough gig. And so I was like, this is a hard room. And so... I then um, uh, had my set and, and, and pr practiced it over and over again. And they're very regimented about what you can and can't say as mm. well, because obviously you're performing on like television and in front of the royal family. So there's extra kind of like stakes to it. And so I was like, I'll do a little bit at the beginning about Charles. And so I did a thing. I, can't, I think it was a little bit about 
talking about uh, the the flag on Buckingham mm. Palace and how you always knew if the Queen was in residence by the flag being up and then yeah. me saying that must have been amazing when you were like my age and you were sneaking out to have drinks with your mates and trying to bring women back because you'd know where the mummy was in mm. or not and, and that got a massive reaction and he laughed and then the whole audience laughed and then as soon as I get into my actual material it was straight back to being a really yeah. tough gig and I was like well that's the key to this show mm -hmm. is to acknowledge the fact that there are two very very famous people in the room and make the whole of your routine about them because yeah, yeah. there's no point in then going into like prepared jokes because they're going to die and yeah. that's not what they want they want you to talk about the weirdness of the situation so that was a really good learning curve that if I was ever going to do it again then I had to talk mm -hmm. about the royals that are in attendance and just throw them under the bus because <laughs> that's the only way you can win that gig so then when I was asked to host it and I didn't know who the royal family mm. member was going to be that was going to attend and I was told that it was Prince Harry I was like it was the first time I think he'd ever done it yeah because yeah. it had always been other members of the royal family and then I was the first year that it was Prince Harry I was like thank you god this is perfect yeah, it's yeah, just it's like for you it's ideal for me and it was when he was single as well and he was still sort of like Jack the lad and that was his kind of mm. public reputation and so it was just like a tr treasure trove to the point where on the night I remember like I did that first joke where I um you know did a ginger joke for all intents and purposes um and then I did, what was the other joke I did? I kept throwing him under the bus. Oh yeah, because he, he was single at the time and he was like obviously the most eligible bachelor mm -hmm. in the country. And I made a joke about bringing out the band Little Mix and doing a live Tinder with him. Sure. And then trying to set him up with one of the acrobats in Cirque du Soleil. Mm -hmm. And it was just like relentless to the point where I remember halfway through the evening, I came backstage and one of my writers and the producer were in the dressing room. I was like, I think I've probably got to like rein it in now. I think I've gone into, I've steamed yeah. in too hard. I've got yeah, yeah. overexcited. And we're about to get to the point where I think I will cross the line and he will stop laughing at all of these jokes. But it was amazing. And it was like, it was a great gig. And and again, like, yeah. every time I was, like, chucking barbs off at him, the audience were on side with me. And then the minute I was doing actual jokes, it was, like, tough again. So when did you have the Afghanistan joke part of it? Like, did you, and did you, were you nervous about it? Do you think... Uh, well, no, no, it was just one of those perfect ones where it... Because also all those people are so like prim and proper and the mm -hmm. audience of the Royal Variety Show is like all like very well-to-do, like crusty old white dudes sat there yeah. in their suits and like, you know, looking down their nose at you. I knew that if I did a little bit of like nationalism and, and it, yeah. baiting of like, <laughs> uh, you know, British exceptionalism and uh, applauding him for being a veteran that they would be right on side and yeah. I'd reel them in so the minute I went I'd like to commend you for your service in Afghanistan and they were oh yeah. and I was like right, I've got them now yeah and then yeah because you got them paying attention and then you're like oh now they, yeah they bought into the yeah, premise yeah, yeah, yeah. they really I, they really um were sold on the dummy yeah so you know, in the then retelling, you say the joke didn't do well that night. But in, seemingly, as you tell me now, it did well. In the recording, it seems like it did well. Did it feel like it didn't well? Is that just because you wanted to set up didn't well? Like, what was the thinking? It, you know, you say it, di it, di uh, it went down like a dead corgi. Oh, yeah. I think it went down like a dead corgi with, like, the, the people in the royal box and all of the, the organizers <laughs> and the people that had said, just watch it, like, there <gasps> and, like completely ashen faced and because that's what happens the minute you make a joke about one of them everyone's looking to see mm. whether they laugh 
So all of the like the people from ITV and the head of the Royal Variety mm. Show and all of the like the suits basically so like funny. cannot stand it and like the, the, to the point where also you like slightly have to lie about what you're going to say on stage to get it round the censors and so you know I hadn't told them the extent of how far I was going to push it I just said I'm going to do some references to him but don't worry it won't go too far and then I do that joke and. Like, yeah, everyone is then the minute I walk off stage because I then introduced someone and I came off stage and I'm like surrounded by mm-hmm. all of the producers and the person who's like the, the the royal liaison. And they're all like absolutely terrified because they think, oh, no, you've overstepped. Yeah, the mark. Yeah, this yeah. is not what you're meant to do at this show. It's all about deference and, you know, uh, you know, duty and, and how dare you. So. Uh, in in that respect, like I think, yeah, it went f- to them. It went down like a dead corgi. Cool. That makes sense. Um, I also want to ask you. Mentioned you also have a story about performing at Kensington Palace for, yeah. for Charles and Camilla, and that's show not going well. Yeah, and you you all these stories mixed together. Can you tell us just to get a sense of your relationship to doing comedy with the Royals? Yeah, I got booked for that one basically off the back of having done quite well at the Royal yeah. Variety Show when they were there. So they booked me to go and do their Christmas party. And it was at Kensington Palace for all of their staff. And they were in the front row, Charles and Camilla. And they were literally in thrones. It was yeah. like big high back chairs. And they were sat there. And again, toughest gig. 20 minutes, no warm up, no other acts. Just you doing comedy for the royals. Every joke you do, they just look to see whether they've laughed or not. And again, the same. My actual material didn't really yeah. land. But I did a load of jokes about how I'd been at school with Kate Middleton and my mum always referred to her as the one that got away and stuff like that, which people found funny because I guess there was so much tension in the room that breaking it with... with, with a, an acknowledgement of the situation. An acknowledgement of the situation, yeah, I think they, they enjoyed. So, yeah, that, 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 that gig was genuinely tough. And he did make a joke afterwards about um, the next year maybe trying out a magician. And also someone told me, because I had known Michael McIntyre did that gig, and Omid Jalili did that gig. He's another the two comedians that are friends of mine. And Omid Jalili told me that the year before he'd done it, and they'd had a guy who had uh, an acrobat who had climbed through a tennis racket. And that's what they'd booked as the entertainment. And then after that, they'd gone mm-hmm. gone to having comedians. But I did think at the time, I was like, well, look, this is bad for me, but it could be worse. I could be clambering through a tennis racket right now. I don't suspect that would have gone down particularly no. with Camilla. <laughs> pay with a crate of wine as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Probably There's nice no wine. Payment, you just get a case of wine. Is it nice wine? Is it like special? It was quite well, nice wine. I only did it as well because my dad really wanted I was like, it's a free gig. It's going to be really tough. As I said, like, it's, I don't really see it as like that prestigious. And my dad was like, you're bloody doing it. I want to meet Charles. So I had to do it so that they could come along and that's he could meet um, So the next part of the joke is the, the Elton John bit. And it's that's like a thing where it's like you know you have the punchline of what he actually says. But you yeah. can't just be like one time Elton John said that. When And I think a lot of this story you have these sort of funny lines and you have to sort of do the ramp up. How do you think about the sort of ramp up to build when you know you have that funny part coming? How do you like approach the telling of story that way? I don't know. I think yeah, it's gr- it's great when it's like when you know you have that big punch and you know you've got the the hardest bit of the joke and then I think from there I always just extrapolate 
Mm-hmm. And it starts off as just a simple punchline. And then I just keep adding more and keep building it up as much as I can get away with. Yeah, yeah. And I love doing that. I love having a big performance bit that kind of uh, gears up to a nice big punchline. Uh, and that one's was great because he literally gave me the punchline, <laughs> whispered it in my ear um, on the night. And uh, yeah, no need for embellishment as well. He He literally delivered the line perfectly um and on yeah on national television people couldn't hear it it was just no they couldn't hear it yeah it was just to me um because i'd been warned as well that he had an like a really wicked sense of humor uh you'd had to be warned yeah and and he didn't disappoint he he was he was very (laughs) mischievous uh and very very funny and very very inappropriate and uh has been whenever I've sort of crossed paths with him, which has been uh, always a delight that yeah. someone like that doesn't take himself too seriously. Um, in the rehearsal, it was, I remember it so awkward as well, because he turned up to the rehearsal. I wasn't necessarily expecting him to be in the rehearsal, and he was literally right in my eyeline, and I was doing all of these like jokes on his intro, <laughs> making jokes about his shell suits and stuff like that, and uh, then feeling a little bit nervous that maybe he wasn't going to go with him and he was like wow that's bloody hilarious i was like oh great i think i can get away with a lot with you you then uh cut to the screen room show the face you made what which is interesting what what made you you do that throughout that special what made you think to have these sort of visual proof of the joke? yeah that was probably just because i couldn't get the um rights to show the clip Got it. because <laughs> the reaction uh, on the video probably was even better but but why just... even include it all like obviously the joke works people probably believe what you say what why have this sort of extra proof uh i don't know i think with something like that a it helps because a line like that and a moment like that almost feels like too good to be true and yeah. like that moment is the exact moment that he said it and to have it captured as a picture i think is like really delightful and the audience really enjoy it because it's like i don't know i think sometimes with 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 audiences you know you're watching a comedian and you expect or deep down you you know assume that there's some embellishment and to have something like that is like something i don't know <laughs> it's receipts yeah yeah exactly. but you know but funny receipts as well yeah and it's like an extra little button to the joke and uh yeah i i don't know like i with that um show i ended up yeah using quite a lot of visuals and uh again like that's another thing with an arena if you've got a screen there you might as well use mm-hmm. it and so i was like i think i would like to add some kind of like visual elements to the show and then they kept building and then i th- i don't think it was always there i was like oh actually i think there's an amazing photograph from that night we should try it one night and then put it up and people Loved it. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Never got Elton John's permission. Probably <laughs> should have asked it. Sometime. It's too late now. But I saw him subsequently and he didn't mention it. So um, so the, the joke continues and you're at the reception and uh, you have sort of two jokes in this moment. One about how relatable your material is. And then you mention your friend Dave and you, and you joke about the fact that you would even have a friend named Dave. And I feel like we need to stop here for a second because um, to an American audience, there's going to be there's something that. British audiences seem to know about you right away that I think yeah. American audience like myself did not, which is your voice apparently reflects a certain sort of things about your class and your upbringing that I, I was like, sounds like a British person. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. can you tell tell me and our listeners 
when a British hear, person hears you talk, what do they think? Uh, well, the minute they hear my voice, uh, it's like a class thing. It's projected that I am from the upper echelons mm -hmm. of so high society and that I am posh, that I am, uh, you know, a public schoolboy, which again is confusing because public is yeah. boarding school and private school. It's very um, confusing. Uh, but yeah, so all of that is uh, projected onto me. Um, correctly so <laughs> sure, yeah, <that's laughs> it's not projected that is the truth yeah uh so certain assumptions are made and it's been one of the hardest things in terms of transitioning my comedy to work in the states is remembering that an audience doesn't have that preconception about me and having to work to um sort of you know fill in the blanks a little mm. bit more whereas there's uh yeah this this unsaid thing in in Britain that I can sort of rely on and um, you know take as read, uh, and that has been a, a, a struggle at times over here, remembering that that's not the case in the states. So yeah, a name like Dave is a pretty traditional working class yeah. British name, and therefore it might be unlikely that I would have a friend called Dave. Okay. You would more associate my friendship group with the Ruperts of this world, with the Archibalds, mm -hmm. uh, names such as that. Uh, <laughs> Noah, Digby, two of my best friends. So uh, again, yeah, it's um, it's very much uh, based in truth and fact. That's that's interesting. So how, how do you do it when you play an American odds? Do you just tell them up front? Like, do you have to be like... I just rewrite, yeah, rewrite it and drop a load of stuff basically yeah i mean i've tried to sort of crowbar some of that stuff in and, and and occasionally you can sort of get away with it being like a british thing rather than a posh mm -hmm. thing but on the whole you just have to sort of like yeah slightly yeah a lot of it will work as that where it the punchline becomes about oh this is a british thing rather than a posh thing yeah. so british people are fancy not your fancy exactly and and in england yeah you have to sort of recalibrate it but um yeah you do you definitely i definitely lose a bit of material when i come over mm -hmm. here so the class thing is interesting because it you know doing research it seems like at first you try to hide from it yet you talked about that you tried different voices at first and then yeah. you know it seems like especially a lot of your act has been actively sort of pushing against the expectations of it. Can you talk about the sort of, of how you learn to evolve with it and and make an asset out of it? Well, it had to become an asset as well because I, I soon realized so many, like, you know, straight white male comedians and so many straight white male comedians when I was coming up, mm -hmm. all of the same. I had age. That was a little bit of a USP yeah. when I, because I was so young. I was like, well, that's an angle. But I did soon realize that that's an angle that I will very rapidly lose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I need to find another angle rather than just being prepubescent. So then I realized, well, actually, the one thing that slightly marks me out from all of the other mm. um, guys with the same haircut talking about the same stuff on stage is that I come from a very, like, ridiculous uh background and mm. i went to a boarding school and and you know have this uh sort of like you know existence and family and background and and all of that and 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 that's something that i could use as material and uh i could yeah bend that to my advantage and and so then it became like the thing that sort of slightly marked me out i guess from all of the other yeah. acts that you know were coming at comedy from a similar angle to me when I was just doing it yeah. sort of without uh, leaning into that. And so, yeah, it definitely became something that became 
part of my act very quickly. And then, yeah, I guess probably once it became part of my act, then you you have the flip side of that, which is you don't want it to all be about Mm. that. And maybe I've been guilty sometimes of uh, leading into it too much. And now, maybe as I've matured a bit as a comedian, I'm trying to find... A, a slightly new version of yeah. my voice so it's not all about that because that joke does wear a little thin eventually <laughs> sure yeah um so we get to the dave into gay part and this may maybe bold to say but i believe this this is a put on so yes this is a put on yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh every, every, one night it wasn't so yeah so let's so talk, one night yeah it that's this what i get so to talk about fleshing it out what happened how how we got to uh, where it is i did it yeah so i did it one night I was like, I'll because ch- I, I, I at the beginning I was like, so this is what I do when I do a joke about someone else mm-hmm. is that I make sure that it works first before I ask permission mm. because I don't want to ask permission for a joke that then doesn't work yeah. because then I've wasted <laughs> yeah. that, that opportunity and potentially uh, jeopardized a friendship or relationship mm. over a joke that I'm not even going to use. So I make sure that I do it first. And so I was like, well, I'm going to do it. A couple of times, road test it, make sure this joke works. Then I will ask Gabe if I can use it and if I can use his name and talk talk to him about it. Um, so I was like, I'll give him a fake name just whilst I'm road testing it. And whilst I was road testing it and using the fake name, I got very confused one night because I was not like, um, you know, uh, uh, comfortable yet with the with the joke and the wording of it all. That I just said his name out loud, and it was very very funny in the moment, and people enjoyed the slip yeah. up and so uh, because i got that laugh i was like oh it's gonna be really hard not to try and get that laugh again so then i was like i think i'm gonna have to do that every night so then uh, yeah it was it happened once yeah and then i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna do it again uh and so i mean and yeah i guess that's also like slightly my like i don't know i like doing things like that which I know are probably a little bit like trad. I don't know. It's because mm-hmm. I grew up watching, as I say, like lots of lots of theatre and lots of farce. Mm-hmm. And like lots of my heroes were people like, you know, like weird music hall acts like Norman Wisdom and things like, like that. And so uh, I have a real love for that. And, yeah. and I love watching corpses. And I used to go and watch lots of you know, theatre with my mum and dad when I was growing up and watching, like, Brian Rick's farces and stuff like that where, like, masterful, like, uh, corpses and... Corpses and, is people breaking? People breaking. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of other, like... I mean, I, I, why I say I'm trying to think of other... The, all of the names that I mentioned are probably flying over everyone's head anyway. It's we know like the word weird farce. Twee, <laughs> weird, twee, niche uh, British comedians. But, like, yeah, I do have an appreciation for that. So that that's maybe where my lo- love of that comes from. And so, yeah, I built that into the, that routine because it also makes it a little bit uh, messier. And I think, um, yeah, the audience in- enjoy it and they enjoy seeing me sort of fraying and... It feeling. Yeah, I mean, what is it like Five. to play it? Because it keeps on, I assume you did, you know, it grows. It's quite a large part. It's like the centerpiece of this yeah. joke is the part of it not working. Yeah. How did it evolve? Did any part of you, because around when you're doing this joke, there are some comedians, at least in the States, that had something similar, but would then do a part where they're like, then acknowledging that this all was a lie. Like yeah. you sort of don't, you just sort of play it as is. Talk about sort of that approach and how you sort of um, built it out and decided not to reveal that this was sort of all a put on. Um, 
Well, I until feel, right now, I guess. Yeah, until right now, <laughs> I guess. It's, it's far enough away yeah. that <laughs> we've got some distance from it. But I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's, I mean, other people would be of a different opinion, but I'm kind of like, I was like a magician not reading his trick. Mm. I do feel it's a little bit like that. I, I think people buy into it and uh, some people maybe would want to, I don't know, would want to know, but I think, and a lot of people do realize, yeah. but don't care. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. I didn't feel the need to, to kind of like puncture it or take people out of it because I think uh, they enjoy it. The the other f- funny one that I did that was a again a moment that happened and I was like, it's too good not to mm-hmm. give every audience this moment. Was I did a show where I came on on a horse uh, at the beginning of the show because I was like, come on, I'm in an arena. I need to give them a proper mm-hmm. night out. They've booked a babysitter. The last time they were in this venue, they were probably seeing Lady Gaga. So I need to put on a show. So I'm going to come on on a horse. So I came on on a horse. And on night two, as I came on on the horse and dismounted the horse and made my triumphant entrance, the horse unloaded its bowels onto the stage and then trotted off. It was hilarious. And we had to deal with it in Mm -hmm. the moment. And the stage manager had to come on and I had to shovel it. And anyway, they loved it. And so I was like... We've probably got to manufacture that every night because that would be brilliant. And so we did it every night and people absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was, uh, yeah, my poor tour manager, Johnny, having to create like the perfect fake. Uh, yeah, got it. Yeah. I was like, dung. did you have to figure out oh, yeah, yeah, feeding figure the horse? Out. <laughs> and then there was like, you know, whipping off a little uh, 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 cloth that he had hidden over it from underneath the, the wings and then it truly really then becomes a magic it, trick yeah it literally <laughs> became a magic trick and it was just like uh, a bit uh, but yeah so I you know I have, there's been other moments in, in my show where I've sort of had those moments that one as well as is just depressing because then no joke that you tell for the next hour and a half <laughs> gets as big a laugh as a horse taking a dump on the stage I mean what you're doing is like you had these things and you know it, it's it's like what anything a comedian does is they're trying out material in, in with their audience. The audience is telling them what they like. And you're like, well, how could I then recreate the feeling of that moment? Yeah. Because you're so performative on stage, it makes sense. You're like, okay, I just have to act this out again. Yeah. I just have to pretend, I'm, you, you know? Yeah. And I would say that the key to making those bits work and feel like they're not acted and feel like it's not, you know, uh, as prescriptive as as it could be is is making sure as well and it always is the case like those are the bits where i am literally the most like mm. improv improvised yeah. I, you know the 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 i will always say the name wrong and then go into that bit but what happens after that will be different every mm. night and and i like that as well because you know i i am quite regimented when i do stand up in terms of like i do stick quite closely to a script and i like those moments where it becomes a little bit looser and so weirdly you know it it, it is probably authentically the most like mm. live m- moment of the show because it's the messiest part and i am changing it up and making it different um uh but yeah i mean and so and, and the other the other issue with that is like some nights I, I don't connect with it as much because it feels really acted and then other nights it like yeah. it comes out perfectly because it feels very authentic and and messy and um you know it it's uh it's di- whilst most jokes will be 
pretty much the same each time I tell mm. them that's one where every night it was different. Yeah. I mean, speaking about how regimented you are, so the, the joke continues and you, Prince Harry tells a little joke and you sort of do a big act out for it. And yeah. I believe you like are pretty deliberate about how you do act outs. Can you talk about like what the process is? Like that are, are they rehearsed? Or are they scripted? Like how how specific are they? Yeah, I mean, in the old days, I used to work with my uh, this guy called Ben Cavey, who's uh, been a long time sort of collaborator, producer, um, and would work with him on my TV shows and stuff. And he used to work with me on my uh, uh, stage shows. Mm -hmm. And he was like a theatre director when he was younger and then moved into the television. But we would go through the show and we would work out like mm -hmm. physical bits and act outs. And again, like talking of people that influenced me i was always like obsessed with rowan atkinson and john cleese and people like that who you know made the most of their physicality and so i would always try to bring elements of that into my shows and 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 have like big physical act outs and i love using my body in uh weird wonderful ways and and trying to uh you know add to a routine by by building in mm -hmm. like kind of like f physical and visual element to it so yeah with with that one i think that organically became bigger and bigger and bigger and 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 had more kind of like uh physical elements to it uh as as i as i did it more yeah i had a question about directing as you mentioned director in this joke there's two visual things that i don't see many specials before where the camera starts and it sort of circumnavigates you and that yeah. happens twice that is a very interesting thing to have in a special, partly because you're like, well, where was, where was the cameraman? Like, because you see a wide shot and then somehow you have a shot around you. Yeah, yeah, Um Do you have, do you, was that a deliberate decision to have that shot? Was that shot filmed live? Yeah, yeah, that was filmed live on the night. Yeah, we had to pick, we did it over two nights. So we picked four moments where mm -hmm. we'd come on and try to uh, film some stuff on the stage because we're just trying to make it a little bit more dynamic. And, uh, yeah, I think one night he tripped over. And again, like that horse taking a shit on the stage, deeply depressing that he gets a bigger laugh than you and all he's done is fall over on his ass. But yeah, we tried to yeah, build that into that routine so that it was yeah shot in a kind of interesting way as well. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember that. and I don't think I'd do it again, to be honest, because it is, it is quite distracting having a cameraman on the stage with you running around. Yeah, I was just so curious. I was like... You notice I... in the next special, <laughs> that doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. The other thing about physical comedy, I feel like this, this moment captures, I think, two things about your comedy. One is you're very specific with your body. Your body is like almost like a muse, how you use it, how you decide to like, you know, you're naked often in things you do off stage. Yeah. And then also embarrassment is obviously such a another muse for you. Yeah. Uh, talk about that. How do you land it on those focuses and, and what it is about it and, and what connects you to those those elements? I don't know. I think it's just that thing of like, uh, I think it's useful to like, to be as like self-deprecating as possible and make yourself as low status as you can and I, I really like that comedy of cringe and mm. humiliation and I like sharing that with an audience and that feels not only cathartic but I think is is uh you know really helps you connect with an audience when you're willing to just like uh bear all and and uh you know embrace uh being a fool uh you know at your own expense for them and I, and I enjoy that and then in terms of like the physicality, I think, 
I don't know. I just think I have quite a funny body. I'm like quite gangly uh, and big, like dangling limbs. Uh, We have this phrase, uh, a lanky streak of piss. Mm -hmm. Is that an Americanism? No. Well, that's what I was called as a kid. (laughs) Uh, My father could be very cool. Uh, But I was like, well, I should embrace this. And uh, so, yeah, I I love it when I can find a routine where I can build in Mm. a little bit of an act out or some, you know, theatricality. I'm very theatrical. I think that's it, isn't it? It's like I just grew up watching so much like uh, theater and live comedy and, uh, you know, was so enamored of it uh, that I wanted to like have an element of that in my show. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long, just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high-quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try Pure Peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, the the moment happens where, you know, there, there's a, the Ron Weasley comment and the Shrek yeah. comment. I want to get a sense of in the moment what goes through your head and also, you know, like, are you a person who you're in this moment like this might be material. I need to like be a comedian right now. So now I have to reveal something about this element of the joke is that that actually happened at a different time. (gasps) So there is there's like it happened, but I had to truncate it all. Yes, because that happened like six months later. Mm. So I had the Royal Variety Show with Harry. And that all that bit is all true. And then six months later, this incident happened with my friend. And it was a Christmas party. And we were all out in London. And we ended up in the same room as Harry. And I was with my friend Gabe, who was quite drunk at the time. And he's like a massive character. Mm-hmm. He's very funny. And he's very punchy. He doesn't care who you are. He will just <laughs> yeah. like steam in. So he's he is like one of those friends that is a bit of a like bit of a hand grenade yeah uh he's been very successful yeah he's a successful documentary really filmmaker successful and tv producer yeah documentary filmmaker and producer because i think because he's like that yeah people love having him around and they love that he doesn't stand on airs and graces and you know i think that's part of his charm and appeal uh but if you don't know him oh my god he can really like 
uh, come in all guns blazing. And so we were in this environment with Prince Harry, who I'd met previously, but didn't know that well. And some of the other group knew him. And I think Gabe just like, he just went, because he was drunk and a bit foolhardy, just really like, yeah, went in no holes barred. Now, the other thing about this joke, which is quite interesting, (laughs) don't know whether this says more about me, but I was like, what happened in real life is Gabe basically won the exchange. Sure. It was the other way around. Yeah. So Prince Harry insulted Gabe and then Gabe uh like yeah like had a topper for Prince Harry and yeah. so Prince Harry ended up with egg on his face but I was like I think if I'm going to tell this publicly and put it on a Netflix special Prince Harry has to win this exchange <laughs> so I had to create like recalibrate mm. it slightly so Gabe ends up with egg on his face hence another reason why I was like I'll probably change his name because I I feel bad like he said a really funny thing. He mugged off Prince Harry. It was hilarious. And I'm now ha- going to have to make Gabe look like the mug because <laughs> I worry more about what Prince Harry thinks than what Gabe thinks. Yeah, yeah. he gave me so much stick. He was like, mate, that's not what happened. Mate, it's not what happened. I was like, yeah, but you understand, like, I want to get a knighthood at some point. And so I need to maintain this relationship now as it turned out i I could have said whatever i like about prince harry and it wouldn't have affected the knighthood he's now persona non grata (laughs) (laughs) there's no need to change it but i didn't know that at the time he was still a national treasure back then he was beloved though you have mentioned that i don't even know if you're joking the way it's passed through that you weren't invited to the wedding because of a joke you made well yeah i think i've i've probably read into that too much but i was quite friendly with him i was i really was i just well i don't know i don't know you probably he probably isn't even aware i exist but i don't know i there was a little part of me was like maybe i could be like if they get a few rejections and there's you know like a little i don't know uh, e. coli bug that goes around and yeah. a few people can't attend I might be on the like the backup list sure. I certainly thought there was a chance a slim chance that I might make the invite to the wedding and then when I didn't make the invite to the wedding bloody James Corden did <laughs> uh, there was a part of me that was like you know what well maybe it's down to that joke maybe it's because mm. I um, you know mercilessly threw him under the bus uh, on stage for an entire tour and then on a Netflix special but again probably not that probably just didn't want me there. Yeah, one of the, one of those two things because of my personality. <laughs> you know, as you mentioned, that part is twisted around. And um, Gabe, on I think he saw you do the joke live in February of the year that you filmed the special at the O2 Arena, and he tweeted, "One, he doesn't have shaved head and cauliflower ears." And then he, well, I mean, he doesn't have a shaved head, but he is quite. Yeah, that's almost, that's almost an I unfair ogreish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He definitely is ogreish. Yeah. No offense to Gabe. No, no offense to him at all, but we could both agree that he has quite bulbous features. <laughs> and a slightly green pigment as well. No, he doesn't. Yeah. He's a lovely looking chap. Yeah. Um, and I guess the question I had, and I, I think it, it, it's with this joke, and as I, you know, as I think about your series, The Trials with your My Father series, what is your relationship to truth? Like, in, like how important is it or non-important do you think you know what is your perspective on it because it does feel like as you know like there are comedians who be like oh it has to be 100 percent true about yeah. whatever that means and that's its own falsity but what is your perspective on it 
I think it's probably be it's pretty pretty loose, pretty loose relationship. Yeah. Me and the truth are in an open relationship when it comes to comedy. Um, you know, again, I think that's very much like come from you know, my main inspiration is my dad. Yeah. Is it, uh, uh, that he's why what's become a comedian because he was this amazing raconteur. And whenever my dad told stories, I began to understand as I got a little bit older that a lot of them were probably embellished. Mm. And so I think, uh, you know, I, that's definitely something that I have inherited from him is the ability to uh, gild and embellish a story. Um, I mean, I'm never going to just like outright lie there will always be like a kernel or a core of truth to the story but as i tell it like there will be embellishment and i feel like that's a lot of comedians and a lot of people's routines and i don't know i feel like with the audience as well there's an understanding that that is the case with with most comedians is that if they're telling a great story there is obviously going to be flourishes or like you know an element of like uh like yeah, crafting it in, in yeah. the retelling of it. And so I feel like that's probably what, what I do. Um, the best stories are always the ones that have more more truth to them than embellishment. So, uh, you know, that's a sort of like the, the trade-off that you have to make. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I thought of this question, I was thinking about your father, partly because I know he has that reputation. I know there's jokes that I've seen him change. Like, there's one example where you talk about how he used to joke about how you have a big penis, but then he realized it's funnier to say your brother has a big penis and you have a small penis. So that became the truth. That is not the truth. (laughs) But the other part about your dad is that you know, he worked in show business. And I think that there's something about how the special that opens that I think is really interesting, which is the special opens and you do the sort of big dance number with people, with women with feathers. None Um, of them shot on the stage as well, thankfully. (laughs) And um, there's fireworks and there's a fake, there's a mic that comes up that you do a little bit with and then you joke about how the mic is fake. And then you, but you, you start by yelling show business. And I, I wonder if, and you mentioned the sort of seeing so much theater growing up that part of you is so, comfortable with show business being show business like you are you embrace the sort of fiction of it because that is your baseline reality you grew up being like seeing your godfather be in place you're like got it so we're you're so it's so much more organic to you than maybe someone who comes to it sort of later in life does that make sense definitely i definitely say that is the case do you have an aversion to the to to being introspective like does it to like a more personal or understated like is it a taste thing or is like ultimately like I guess maybe a better way of phrasing is like, do you think that show business background and growing up and that being your reality makes it so like to you, that is real. It is real to be sort of over the top where being sort of quiet on stage does not ring true. Yeah, just I would. I don't know. I don't know. It would would be like it would just feel so unnatural to me. And, And I do try to, you know, push myself to go there where possible. And yeah, I guess I'm probably on a little bit of a journey to yeah. to doing more of that. And as I say, like earlier in the conversation, like trying to maybe like think about recalibrating my comic voice a little bit as I grow up and mature as a comedian. I, I feel like I'll probably uh, move more towards that as I get a little bit older. And that's, you know, mentioned yeah. Alex's influence as well. Like, that's one of the things that we always talk about. And he's always telling me, you know, like, I mean, the more personal you are on stage, the, you, that's when you're at your best. And, like, you know, he, uh, I don't know, like, I, I 
I guess I probably maybe have had a little bit of a fear of yeah. doing as much stuff about that and and have have, have lent more towards the um the big over the top theatrics and that also yeah yeah I I think is 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 probably something that might might shift. You started so young and as you said a lot of it was sort of either talking about how young you were or like having that sort of young energy or yeah. having a sort of uh, man-child sort of energy. And it's so hard for a comedian to find the voice, period. So you had this voice and now, you know, you're 34. But that to grow out of a voice is always hard. It's hard to grow up, period. But it's hard to like yeah. for a comedian to s- stop a thing that is working to the level that is working for you to yeah. be like, I, all right, I know this works for stadiums of people. What is the more, more mature version of that? And I'm I assume that's sort of where you're working at now. What has that journey been like? Well, it's, yeah, it's weird. Also, I burnt through every single life experience <laughs> yeah. by the age of 21 because I started so early and did like, I'd done two shows by that point. So mm-hmm. I'd gone through everything and talked about it. Um, and so, yeah, that was that was a, a kind of like <laughs> an frustrating um uh, you know, situation that had occurred because I'd started so young, and so like, I, I, yeah, and then and then yeah, the the nature of like doing those those big arena shows, like it's certainly you know a, a certain type of comedy for, like fits those mm. those those venues and and that type of tour better than uh, other types of comedy. So yeah, I don't know. I think yeah, I feel like I am probably going to. Um, develop as a comedian and certainly like feel yeah i definitely still feel like i'm a kind of like a work in progress yeah um but i think yeah a lot of um, a lot of comics feel that way it's like you're you're never going to be satisfied (laughs) you're never the finished article you're always evolving yeah it's the pursuit i mean yeah i think so the other um actually wants to take a step back because i want to ask a question about the material you do about your parents and all that but i feel like it'd be useful for people to know can you just share brief about the professional history of your parents to give people context who might not be familiar uh yeah so my dad my dad was a was a theatrical agent in the sort of 70s and 80s uh and looked after lots of very like um you know a proper actors um like judy dench and people like that do you discover Daniel Day Lewis, or he signed yeah, him out of college? Yeah, well, again, that could be an embellishment. <laughs> sure, uh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't no, think about that until. No, I think I think he, uh, to be fair, he yeah he he did, but yeah, so he looked after all of these very worthy and um, successful actors, and my mum was an actress uh, of middling success. Mm. I I would say uh, not due to any lack of talent, but just op- you know. Uh, opportunity and breaks uh and so she did some like stuff in soaps and bit parts and appeared in pantomime as the back end of a horse and had various ignominies uh like that and so yeah she she was an actress and he was an agent and so i grew up in a household where you know all my godparents were actors and there was lots of theater trips to Mm. see clients of his and stuff to be honest, like when I was a bit older, uh, he'd sort of began to wind down, mm. and a lot of his clients had left him, and it was it was sort of the end of an era. And 
he was very adamant that I didn't become an actor. I really wanted to become an actor, but he was like, I honestly, Jack, I've looked after so many actors that are out of work. You need to get a proper profession. And I would really be very concerned if you went to drama school and became an actor. So I had to go to university and study history of art. And uh, for two semesters or what? For, yeah, like two semesters. <laughs> and then found this route into performing via stand up comedy. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, but so New York Magazine produces a podcast. Recently, they released an issue about Nepo babies. Have you Are you familiar with this issue? I am. Um, how do you feel about the term generally? How do you feel about it well, in regard to your... <laughs> I've decided to own a new term, which I talk about on stage in my current show. Uh, well, I think I'm the first person to have a Nepo dad. Because, yeah, my dad was in the industry, but like... I mean, and obviously, I you know, there's a, definitely a leg up <laughs> in life and... I, I think less so with like people. That's a thing that did always like slightly irk me was people who were like, oh well, his dad's an agent, so that's why he's on TV. It's like my dad was a theatrical agent. He was also like detested by every single casting director in London. <laughs> he was like one of the least popular agents ever because he would just like screw everyone on deals. Like I used to go into castings when I wanted to be an actor, and they'd say, oh, your name's um, Whitehall. Are you any relation to Michael Whitehall? And the room would go silent, and then I'd say, oh, daddy, I had a um, casting with this lady. Um, uh, and she she seemed to recognize your name. Do you do you remember her? And he was like, yes. I think the last time I spoke to her was thirty years ago. And I told her to go fuck herself because she wouldn't throw in travel and accommodation for Richard Griffiths. And so he burnt more bridges than I think he built. Sure. Uh, but that said, obviously, yeah, background of immense privilege. I've had every leg up that one can in life. So I am aware that there is definitely a degree of um, like nepotism. But I think he's the nepo dad. Yeah, yeah. Like I put him on TV um, and then he is just like, he's like a parasite. He's just infected and eaten away at his host. And now he is like thriving. He's doing his own podcast and he's on reality shows and... It's insane. It is interesting because a lot of every comedian talks about their parents in some ways, but you put them in it. Be, you they materialize in reality, and then like they became like an extension. I know beyond you, they just sort of live in the world. It's like a living joke that sort of just like shows up Nuts. on television. Well, also it's because basically I talked about him so much on stage, and I was like, I think I've exhausted that avenue. I can't talk about him anymore. And then Ben Cavey, my friend, the producer, said, "Why don't you?" have him on stage do mm. something with him on stage and we did edinburgh and he said do a chat show he can sit in the corner and he'll just chip in every now and again and be himself i was like fine we did two shows and it was very funny and he just you know derailed the interview every night and just you know uh torched any attempt that i would have to um you know present myself as a competent interviewer by uh, undermining me and insulting me and the audience loved it and he, there was a like a bbc producer and he was like i want to make a show of this and we're like no 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 no. L literally like kicking and screaming dragged to the studio to do this show because we didn't we had no intention of doing anything together beyond like a couple of just fun yeah. shows and then we ended up doing like three series of that and then i was like oh, we're done finally I can just go back to doing what I do and what I like doing and what I want to be focused on. And then bloody Netflix were like, oh, yeah, we had an idea to do a travel show and you could go around the world with him. And again, like not like every other show that I've ever done has been me going to the broadcasters and going, oh, please, will you let me do this? Mm -hmm. 
and with the stuff with my dad, it's always been them coming to us going, can you just do this one more thing? And then we've been like, oh, God, I guess so. And then... And then now he's yeah. He's apparently, it's just your dad. They're using you to get to your dad. It's just yeah. The, uh, the amount of people now. I used to get stopped in the street and like people were like, "Oh, I love your stuff and you're funny." And you're this now it's like, "Oh, mate, your your dad's so much funnier than you." <laughs> or in America, I had and this is I was in a hotel. I think it was in Arizona uh, when we were filming the show, and there were two guys that walked past my dad, recognized him, didn't recognize me, which was obviously a ding to the ego. Uh, but then to make it even worse, as they walked past me, I overheard them and they were like, oh, that's the man from Travels with My Father. And the guy was like, what's Travels with My Father? Oh, it's the show on Netflix. It's about an esteemed elderly English gentleman <laughs> that travels the world with his doofus son. And I was like, wow, that's what I've been reduced to. I'm the doofus son. That's so funny. That is reversed. That's, your name's in the title. They, have to, they should yeah. do... Netflix should do a screen that is the same show, but then it has with Michael. He suggested that. <laughs> I can, I'm surprised. Um, Nepo doofus. That the, will be my next. The other thing that I I've, I have a you know a, and I thought about this nepotism thing partly that uh, not just for you, but I, I think about the part that sort of gets under discussed is a pursuit in show business often demands a certain level of obsession that relates to a certain amount of like unavailability both in terms of time or emotionally um, and then kids go into the fields of their parents to have access to them mm. um they're like oh they're famous if i also become an actor then maybe we can hang out more or whatever it is yeah um does that resonate with you yeah definitely and definitely wanting to like you know what even though i didn't want to like work with him and that was never part of the plan like going into that world and being part of his world was definitely part of the appeal of it and I saw the reverence with which he held actors and performers and people in that profession and definitely wanted to be that because I wanted him to revere me yeah. and you know th th that's definitely part of it if I you know dig a little deeper into what my <laughs> motives were back then and wanting his approval and thinking that this man's the funniest guy in the world and wanting him to yeah. think that I was funny and like you know what sort of worthy of his time and attention and uh yeah there was there was definitely a degree of that i yeah. remember also thinking like i don't know there being there being a frustration when i was a teen that like when i spoke to him he didn't like necessarily talk to me like i was an adult and mm -hmm. treat me as an adult and find me particularly funny or interesting and he was interesting and funny and had all of these interesting and funny friends and you know and I wasn't one of them and, and wanting to to yeah. sort of get his attention and, uh, you know, being able to make him laugh. And he's a very hard nut to crack. But there was, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of that built into the, the desire to go into a career in performance. Yeah, I mean, it also ties into sort of the other thing that I think weaves through, especially the show, which is him being older, like an older dad and both the how you relate to each other and also there's just sort of like so much pathos about the thing about the show is like almost every season ends with like i don't know how many times we could travel together yeah. and then you do another <laughs> show but like clearly there is a maximizing time with him that you drives you yeah 100 percent with everything and i think that's why i want 
yeah, that's why that definitely fuels like an ambition and and a desire to do stuff that I can do with him while I can and for him to, you know, to achieve things that he can bask in as well whilst he's here and 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 I share a lot of uh you know the the highs with him and mm. and enjoy being able to to do that and he you know he he's been he definitely has helped steer my career and work and he's a great sounding board he is a even for a sort of a 80 sorry about to be 83 year old man um you know from a very very different generation he's still got like a good sense of taste and judgment and Mm. and i do run a lot of stuff kind of like by him and uh value his opinion and uh it also helps to have someone like that that literally has no filter if i'm doing something that i shouldn't be doing he will tell me yeah i will have no qualms about it if i'm yeah Related, and, and this joke transitions to the idea of America. You're currently in America as we speak. What does success in America mean to you, especially at this point? Like, what did, what is it, what did it represent? What does it represent? What do you hope for it? Does it matter to you as much? Like, not only do you, you're just such a touring act, big touring acting, you have shows that you star in or produce, you have, you know, everything. So what, what does America mean at this point in your career? I don't know. It feels like it's just a new challenge, and that's exciting. I think... You know, I I would in no way want to take for granted my audience in the UK, but I guess there is a little bit of a ceiling in terms of what you can achieve. Uh, and now, and maybe I've reached that, and it's exciting to be able to come over here and try and build a new audience mm. and, uh, you know, s- start not from scratch necessarily, but uh, to kind of like go through that journey again in, with a new group of people and, um about to embark on my first kind of US tour and that feels exciting again and mm. uh you know it's going to be a sort of adventure and this certainly feels um different in a kind of like fresh challenge which is which is exciting have you wait this is side note have you ever heard of the book killing bono yes um i auditioned for the film <laughs> yeah so you know what it's about. So it's yeah, such a yeah. guy who grew up with Bono. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have a similar relationship with Robert Pattinson. I need to give some of you a little bit of backstory about my acting career. When I was at school, I was a big fan of drama. I know, shock horror. <laughs> Not the only fan of drama at my school, though. The other guy that was really into drama at my school was a chap called Robert Pattinson. There he is, young R. Pats, star of the Twilight films. And every time there was a school play at my school, Robert Pattinson would get cast in the lead role, and Villager 17 (laughs) would go to this guy. (laughs) Yeah, laugh it up. For some reason, my drama teacher wanted the star of his play to be the young James Dean and not the young Katie Lang. Fair to say that over the years I built up a little bit of resentment towards our pats. He became my rival. Rival's a strong word. Nemesis. <laughs> he is my nemesis. Oh yeah, I've never thought of doing a <laughs> book called Killing Our Pats. And um, and you also have a story about how you auditioned for Harry Potter. Yeah. And you didn't get it, but Emma Watson was in your school yeah. and she did get it. Yeah. Um, do you want to be that famous? Do you want to be that? that level of famous and i mean i don't i don't necessarily hanker for that level of fame yeah 
I mean, in terms of like, I like Robert Pattinson's career. Sure. I love the this, the work that he does. Yes, I love 100%. the movies that he gets to make and the, the people that he gets to work with. Like, definitely, I have professional envy for, um, you know, what he's doing. And I think he's made excellent choices. And I think he works with great people. Yeah. And he's someone that has developed as an artist and an actor. I didn't <laughs> think this was going to turn into a Robert Pattinson loving, but... Uh, well, it's good. good I'll it. say this, having listened to your interviews, it does feel like you've now matured to like, it used to be a begrudging respect or like a, yeah. he's very successful, but like he's a terrible actor. And now it oh, just no, seems- Oh no, he totally, uh, like egg on my face, prove me wrong, you know, is a very, very accomplished actor. And uh, yeah, maybe it was just the Twilight script. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not his fault. But you'd like the work, but you don't need to be that famous. If you can. no, no, no. I well, I just like I don't. I yeah. I mean, I don't know what I want necessarily. It sort of changes, and I can't. And I don't know whether that's just my restless mind. But I don't. I don't really know what I want. Like part of me is like I'd love to really challenge myself as an actor and try to find some like really dramatic yeah. roles that surprise people. And and I definitely and I know I want that. But then I'm also like. I would also love to do like big, broad, Jim Carrey, 90s style comedies. And I don't know whether you can do both of those anymore. Maybe you can. Jim Carrey tried. Jim Carrey tried. (laughs) Yeah, he did. Um, But like, yeah, I look at the projects that I'm kind of attracted to or developing and and is very varied. But it's so hard. I don't know. Again and again, because it's slightly out of your hands as to what people will go, right, we're willing to make this or we like you doing that and that's another reason that i like like america in terms of like talking about why i want to come over here and why i've actively tried to kind of do stuff in america it's not about like breaking america because i want more success or more fame the thing that i like about the states that is hard for me in england is that in england i'm so seen in, Mm. in a very very specific way it's very very hard for anyone to see me as anything other than than that because they're used to me for the last 15 years being this big broad idiotic man-child comedian and so it's so hard to get out of that box and in america there's it there's definitely more of an opportunity to be seen in a different light and to do different things and to um you know be able to to act in a drama or you know play a completely different character because there's less uh, as we mentioned earlier, like yeah. of a preconception about me, uh, and so I feel like I get to start with a little bit more of a blank canvas here. Yeah, I mean, I think as as we're talking about, like it is so ho- you had so much success with a persona, the struggle to break out of it to seem more mature is also a struggle of an audience showing up expecting something. Exactly. So to have an audience who does not necessarily expect as much, I imagine, is exactly what an artist who's been working so long probably is would be looking for yeah and i definitely think you know they're like yeah people want that persona and i feel the feel that i feel that with everything i do so i'm like i give in cave in and give them what they want Um, over here they don't know what the persona is so i can i can choose what i present to people So now it's time for the final segment of the show. It's called the Laughing Round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's a comedy podcast, I call it a laughing round. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite joke joke? Like a uh, street joke or a dad joke? Uh, Tim Vine. Do you know Tim Vine? No. Great. He just does puns. He's like sort of, uh, 
like a kind of Stephen Wright, but with a lot more energy. Um, so the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah. He's like Stephen Wright's writing. If Stephen Wright was mm. like heavily caffeinated, got it. Cool. And he has a joke, which is just very short, very simple, very sweet. Velcro. What a ripoff. <laughs> so that that would be my joke, joke. Um, is there a joke you wish you could steal, or a joke you saw another comedian do, and you wish I had? It's like I wish I had that bit. I wish I can do that every night. Uh, Michael McIntyre, um, Mandrel. That's a great routine. I mean, yeah, Michael McIntyre is someone that I watch and I'm like in envy of his like ability uh, as a kind of observer and writer. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Mandrel. That's a classic. Do you have a short story of an interaction with a legendary comedian living or dead that you're willing to share with us? I had dinner with Jerry Seinfeld uh, when me and my dad had done a couple of series of the Netflix show we were invited to LA we, and Ted Sarandos invited us to dinner uh, to sort of thank us for doing the show and then sprung it upon us that Fred Armisen and Jerry Seinfeld were going to be the other guests at the dinner and I was like oh my god and very very nervous and arrived with my mum and dad uh, and I would not have brought my mum and dad had I known that those were going to be the other mm-hmm. guests and uh, I think it was my dad no, or maybe it was my mum that asked him what he did. Uh, and I was like, oh, God, please just stop talking, woman. But he was very, very gracious and dealt with it wonderfully. And then, uh, yeah. It must be so, unlike oh, you were talking about, it must have been so refreshing if just have someone who is free of expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the other one that I had the other night was just horrendous. Uh, was always at a friend's birthday and Larry David was in attendance and after dinner they brought out like a karaoke machine and someone thrust a microphone in front of my face and I sang like a karaoke version of Wonderwall and completely cleared the room including my hero Larry David and didn't even pluck up the courage to go and speak to him the only knowledge of me is that I murdered an Oasis song in front of him and really ruined that opportunity Um, Do you have a a favourite time you bombed? Favorite time I bombed. Well, I love that the, the Prince Charles yeah, yeah. bombing in front of him, because even though I was bombing, and that was one of those ones where even in the moment I was like, "This is going to make a great story." Uh, do you have uh, advice you have to give a comedian? Advice to give a comedian. Um, I mean, don't be frustrated. When I first started, and I was going through all my different uh, iterations of my. Um, persona on stage and people kept saying you're a good joke writer but you just need to find your voice and I was so frustrated and I was like can you, could, well, I don't understand why are you talking in riddles can someone just tell me what my voice is just tell me what the voice is because I want to get better quicker um, yeah. but just be patient you will find it and unfortunately it is a process Yeah. Uh, and then last one do you have a, a joke that you thought was so funny that you brought on stage and it just didn't work. You keep on trying, and it just didn't work. Yeah. But you'll go to your grave being like... I've got one at the moment that I'm doing, and I know I should drop it. There's every, every tour, there's one joke that I'm like, I'm just doing this for me, and because I know it's a good joke, and I know it's a nice observation, and you, it's their fault for not getting it. And yes, every audience seems to be in agreement that it's not Can you not share funny. the general vicinity of it? Well, the joke, so it's a joke about... Um, uh, so I talk about getting a... Di- I'm going to try it for the hundredth time and it's not going to land on a podcast either. But I think it's a nice observation where I say, I'm going to get a dog because cause we want to get a dog because we were going to have a kid. And you get a dog first because you get a dog. And if you can keep the dog alive, then you can have a kid. And I'm like, that's not a rule. 
Um, but it should be, you know, like I see the state of some of my friends that are having kids and then this is the bit that never works. I'm like, so the state of some of my friends that are having kids, some of them can't even keep a basil plant alive. And now you're responsible for your human being. You couldn't look after a plant that lived next to your tap. All you had to do to stop it from dying once a week, and then I do a little act out of just like moving it across mm -hmm. to the tap, was this. And now you're responsible for a human being. Now, I think that's a great observation, that there are people that are bringing children into this world that cannot sustain the life of a potted plant for more than seven days. Yet, for some reason, no one's on board with me. Whenever I put that out there into the world, they're like, no, 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 no. I'm sorry, we're not, we're not going with you there. I'm like, everyone's, everyone's, it knows what I'm talking about. Why? I, Maybe I, Michael McIntyre could take that and <laughs> and turn it into a beautifully crafted observational piece of comedy, but I have thus far been unable to, and it really frustrates me. Every night I feel like stopping and going, what the fuck is wrong with you? That is a great observation, and I don't want to lose the crowd right now, but that should have got more. It deserved more, and I'm going to keep doing it. And I, there was one point as well, because I was obviously road testing this yeah. in America, I was like, maybe it's because I say basil instead of basil. That's what I was going to say. Nope, I've changed it up. <laughs> I did, who can't keep a basil plant alive, and I did it as basil plant. It didn't get a laugh, and then afterwards, in the meet and greet, one of the fans came over and said, why did you say basil i was like the one english person that had come to see the show in america and he's calling me out for saying basil it's like you've changed a lot mate you don't even say ba it's basil all right anyway you'll you'll get it very frustrating probably. i'll get it i'll nail it and there will be an episode of this podcast in six months time when you ask what's the one routine that you would steal and the comedian will say oh my god that jack whitehall basil routine man that kills the crushes i love that the end. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you so much. That's it for another episode of Good One. Watch Jack's specials and travels with my father on Netflix. Watch the after party on Apple TV Plus. Follow Jack on social media at Jack Whitehall. Good One is produced by myself, Shalani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Kapushigashin did our theme song. Rate review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email me comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Please pre-order my book, comedy book, wherever books are sold. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Box Media Podcast Network. We're here every other Tuesday. Have a good one. Welcome to Good One. Show about talking them jokes. Mm, son. Hey, 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 good one. It's a good one. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. 
Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.